Hello, and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the love of Jesus to change people's lives. I'm Eric Sintel, your host, and in this episode, I want to start off by telling you, if you happen to be one of our local listeners, to, about some cool events we have coming up during Holy Week. So this Thursday, from 1 to 5 p.m., we'll have Stations of the Cross, or a Journey to the Cross, and that will continue at 7 to 9 p.m. and also Friday, 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. So the journey to the cross or stations of the cross would just be um, these individual places set up within the church and have a starting point. You just go from place to place and there will be some kind of uh, activity or interactive thing. Um, and it's totally self-paced, self-guided, you know, so you just, you know, you'll read this thing and do what it says and reflect and think and pray and um and that is again this thursday 1 to 5 p.m 7 to 9 p.m and then friday morning 7 a.m to 2 p.m we'll also have a monday thursday service at 6 p.m so some exciting stuff to help us prepare for easter um a week from yesterday uh, as i record and publish this and so this, um, you know, these are opportunities for us to connect with Jesus and to remind ourselves of what Jesus did on the cross for us. So I have found that what Jesus did on the cross for us is very confusing. <laughs> um, most of us in America, at least, American Christians, were taught that Jesus died for our sins and that he took the punishment for our sins. Um, the fancy theological phrase is penal substitutionary atonement, right? That God uh, needed to punish us or had to punish us for our sins because that's the requirement of his justice. But instead, he punished Jesus, or Jesus took that punishment in our place. So that's the substitutionary part. So penal would be the punishment, substitution would be Jesus taking our punishment for us. And by doing so, he um, is able to reconcile us to God or make atonement, right? at one um, You know, so we can be reconciled to God and become one with God once again. I do not believe in penal substitutionary atonement. <laughs> um, I think the penal part, the punishment part, is probably my biggest hang-up. Um, it doesn't seem remotely like a loving God, or even a just, fair God, to punish Jesus, his own son, for something that someone else did. And it's not really forgiveness. It's not really grace. Unmerited, undeserved, unearnable forgiveness to punish someone else for the thing that you're supposedly being given grace for. Right? I mean, if you took, uh, if you took Jesus out of it and you thought about this analogy, you know, you owed a lot of money to uh, a bookie you know, you've been buying, borrowing money to go gamble, and now you owe this to the bookie, and this guy's gonna, you know, hire some thugs to beat you up. 
<laughs> if you don't pay up. And instead, you know, your brother or your close friend or someone comes along and says, you know, I'll pay it or I'll take the beating. And they beat that person up. That's not grace. That's not forgiveness, right? That's rather just exacting the debt from someone else. Um, so penal substitutionary atonement, for me personally, diminishes God. It detracts from God's love and mercy and grace. Um, and believe it or not, penal substitutionary atonement is not necessarily a biblical view. And it's not necessarily the, um, it's definitely not the view of the earliest Christians in the first several centuries of the Christian church. Penal substitutionary atonement really didn't come on the scene until John Calvin, around, you know, 1520, 1500s. So for 1500 years of Christianity, uh, Christians did not think about Jesus' death on the cross in that way. It was only with John Calvin about 500 years ago that that idea became um, introduced to Christianity and then it eventually took hold and really became prevalent. And I can see a little bit of the appeal to it that it, um, I mean, it definitely is a good evangel evangelism tool. You know, <laughs> um, this is, you know, what you deserve, but this is, uh, you know, Jesus took it for you and, you know, you better uh, convert and follow Jesus or else you're going to end up in hell burning forever um, to get the punishment that, you know, uh, you deserved all along. But I just don't think it fits the God revealed by Jesus. So if we think about Holy Week, if we think about Easter, if we think about Jesus' life and ministry as a whole, he reveals a God who is unconditionally loving and radically inclusive. So if we believe Jesus is the Son of God, then it only stands to reason that Jesus is the fullest, greatest revelation of God. If you want to know who God is and what he's like, you got to look at Jesus first and foremost, maybe even exclusively, but certainly primarily. So if Jesus is the fullest, most thorough, greatest revelation of God, then what can we learn about God or infer about God based on Jesus? Well, I can't imagine Jesus saying, I'm going to punish you because of something he did, <laughs> right? Or I'm going to punish him because of something you did. You know, I cannot imagine Jesus doing that. And in fact, we have story after story in the Gospels where Jesus perhaps has the opportunity to do so, something like that and doesn't. You know, the example or story that comes to my mind immediately is the adulterous woman. You know, they bring this woman before Jesus and say the law says that we should stone this woman for her adultery. What do you say, Jesus? So this is a really tricky situation because if Jesus says, no, absolutely not, <laughs> then he is seemingly rejecting the law, the Torah, that the Jewish people follow. If he um, says, yes, sure, well, he's certainly going to be contradicting his teaching of love and mercy and grace and, and all of that. 
So what does he do? Well, he says, well, he is who without sin cast the first stone. Of course, no one is without sin, so no one casts any stones. Jesus is the only person there with the authority, the right, to cast stones. He's the only one there without sin. And he doesn't. He chooses not to. And we could talk, too, about the man. Where's the, the husband or the man with whom this woman is being adulterous? Where's he in this story? So this is really a, a very, uh, the more I think about it, actually, a very compelling example of Jesus not <laughs> punishing this woman for something that, yes, she did, but the man did too, right? So when Jesus had the opportunity for a kind of penal substitutionary atonement, he didn't do it. Um, so what do what does make sense? Well, I think just plain old substitutionary atonement makes a lot of sense. Um, Christus Victor, you know, the Christ is the victor. Um, this is a much older, much more ancient uh, theory of Jesus' death on the cross. So whereas penal substitutionary atonement was really just come up came up about 500 years ago with John Calvin, uh, Christus Victor or Christ the Victor is a idea of um, Jesus' death on, on the cross that goes back centuries all the way to really the first few hundred years of the church. And the idea is that we needed uh, someone who could be that perfect sacrifice and who could um, defeat sin and death through that sacrifice. But no human could do it. And so God comes to earth in the form of Jesus to do what for humans what we can never do for ourselves and to defeat sin and death. And so uh, a famous modern day theologian and historian N.T. Wright, um, he's one of the probably best known, most influential theologians uh, of the last several decades, in fact. N.T. Wright is a big fan of the Christus Victor um, model or theory of atonement, of how Jesus' death on the cross reconciles us to God because it, uh, according to him, it inaugurates Jesus as king of the world. It inaugurates Jesus as um, the victor over sin and death and over the world, over the Roman emperor and the concept of empire and domination in general. So I find that theory to not diminish God, for sure. I mean, that fits a loving, merciful, just God. Um, and it fits... Uh, it, it presents Jesus and Jesus being the incarnation of God. So it depicts Jesus and God as offering something of value to humanity. <clears throat> so death, Jesus' death on the cross in this view is not about substitution or sacrifice or, um, or a punishment but rather it's about God giving to humanity. It's about God emptying out, pouring out his love for us so that we could be reconciled. Now, here's an issue that I have with that. Um, you know, if we also say that 
and believe that God is all-powerful. Well, gee whiz, I mean, couldn't an all-powerful God just snap his fingers and say, okay, now you're all reconciled to me. Um, you know, couldn't an all-powerful God figure out a way to reconcile humanity to him that did not involve the torture and death of Jesus Christ, his son? And so, as much as I like substitutionary atonement or Christus Victor, um, I it does kind of boggle my mind a little bit. You know, like, why do it this way? And there are several other different atonement theories. Um, I've talked about two of them, but there are at least five other major ones uh, that have been popular at different times throughout uh, the history of Christianity. And I think that the reason we have at least seven major uh, theories of atonement, theories of how Jesus' death on the cross reconciled humanity to God, is because it doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> Why this way? Why does Jesus have to die on the cross for this to happen if God is all-loving, all-knowing, and all-powerful? should be able to figure out something else, right? Um, so one of the seven theories of atonement, and this is the newest one, is uh, called scapegoat theory. Um, and this is based on or comes from the work of a French uh, philosopher and theologian named René Girard. Um, so René Girard is you know, living in the 20th century, um, and he is trying to make sense of human nature and of God and faith after World War II and the Holocaust. So he's trying to figure out, you know, what is... What is so wrong with humanity? <laughs> and he comes up with this idea, this theory, that um, really does seem to explain so much about human nature and, and the sources of our conflicts and our problems. He theorizes that humans have a desire for what other humans have, right? When we see what other people have, then we... Um, want to imitate them and what they have. We develop this desire to have the same thing. And this creates conflict. And so the conflict within a community might grow and grow and become more and more uh, pervasive to the point where um, there's just chaos. <laughs> and eventually, though, according to Gerard, the community, the society, will identify a scapegoat. They'll identify a person who they can kind of blame for all of this violence and conflict. And then they will exile or kill that person. And that will, for a time, temporarily release some of the tension and pressure that had built up. Um, René Girard bases that theory on his study of a lot of literature um, and noticing that pattern throughout human history in different cultures and time places. And, um, and you can definitely see how you could view Jesus in that light. First century Israel, Romans are occupying. There are Jewish 
resistance movements, violent resistance movements. Um, there's this one passage, I believe in Matthew, where uh, Jesus, you know, says, woe to Capernaum, woe to these, you know, he names like three or four different cities. And why does he say sing, single out these cities? You know, did he, uh, you know, have a bad hotel stay there or something? No, he is saying those cities, which are the centers of the underground Jewish resistance movement, are going to come to a bad end because they're going to uh, get crushed by the Roman Empire sooner or later. They need to follow my nonviolent resistance teaching um, that I'm teaching. So Gerard's scapegoat theory makes a lot of sense based on what we know the, the gospel's narrative of Holy Week and of Jesus' death and on the cross. Um, and it makes a lot of sense of what we also know from the historical record. So um, Romans and Jews were at each other's throats, so to speak, in first century Israel. And it was a powder keg until then Jesus comes along and gets scapegoated. You know, they blame him as the source of all these tensions and conflicts because he's riling up these people. Um, from the point of view of the Roman Empire, from the point of view of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's riling up a lot of people <laughs> to um, take a very different approach to uh, the Roman Empire. We're not going to overthrow them with violence. We're going to resist them with nonviolence. And, you know, I just recently um, learned about how much the Jewish historian Josephus who, from whom we get a lot of our historical information about Jesus and first century Israel. He hated nonviolence. Uh, so Josephus, when he writes about the nonviolent movement of Jesus followers, he criticizes that more than he criticizes violent attempts to overthrow Rome. Um, so this is really interesting. And keep in mind too that Josephus, uh, at the time that he's writing his histories, he has essentially become a Roman collaborator. You know, he's on the payroll of the Roman Empire, more or less. Um, and so he's, you have a person favorable to the Roman Empire writing about nonviolent resistance of Jesus and his followers. And he's more critical of that than he is of the violent attempts to overthrow the Roman Empire. Um, and if we look to modern examples, I mean, the civil rights movement in the United States, um, Mahatma Gandhi in India and uh, his use of nonviolence in resisting uh, British colonial rule, um, Nelson Mandela and the use of nonviolence in South Africa. I mean, we, um, it's pretty clear that nonviolent resistance movements actually are more effective than violent resistance movements, generally speaking. Um, they're not always successful, but they have a better chance against an authoritarian government um, because generally an authoritarian government is too strong and powerful to overthrow through military means. Um, so having said all of that, we can see how the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Rome might blame Jesus for, as the source of this tension and conflict. And if we deal with him, maybe we can get rid of some of this tension and conflict. Now, what does this have to do with the afterlife though, right? 
So Gerard does go a step further and he says that Jesus was the last scapegoat. You know, when, when Jesus was scapegoated, it somehow ended this process for all of humanity. Now, the problem with that is that uh, we can point to lots of examples, contemporary examples, the Jews during the Holocaust, for example, of people or groups who were scapegoated. So, um, Gerard's scapegoating theory appeals to me because I think it avoids the one thing that trips up all these other atonement theories. How or why would an all-powerful God do it this way? Uh, with scapegoat theory, it really takes God out of the equation. Um, it's not that God wanted to do it this way, or that an all-powerful God, you know, would, chose to do it this way, or that God was limited to doing it this way. It's it's not that. It's that human beings, in our broken, sinful nature, we wanted what other people have. You know, the Jews want to rule themselves instead of being ruled by the Romans. Um, not to mention all the smaller-scale interpersonal conflict. You know, the Pharisees want to be in charge, but the Sadducees want to be in charge too. And this other, you know, these other sects of Jews and groups of Jews, they really would like to get rid of them and be in charge. We have all these tensions and conflicts, and this charismatic, influential rabbi gathering a huge following and preaching a radically um, countercultural, different kind of message, religiously, but socially and politically as well, you know, he's the problem. Let's get rid of him. So why did Jesus die on the cross? Because he was a threat to the power of the people in power. Because he was a threat to the social order, the political order of the time. So how does this reconcile us to God? Well, it doesn't. And I have come to believe that Jesus' death on the cross, however you look at it, does not reconcile us to God. The resurrection reconciles us to God. The resurrection is the key. That's the thing that is the power of God and Jesus, and the love and the mercy and grace of God and Jesus. So I don't think Jesus had to die on the cross. I don't think God wanted Jesus to die on the cross. I think human beings wanted Jesus to die on the cross, and they scapegoated him and killed him because of the threat he and his teaching posed to their power. But the resurrection reveals God's will. It reveals God's desires, God's promises. It confirms Jesus is divine and affirms the promise of a bodily resurrection of eternal life in Jesus Christ. So this Easter, I would encourage us to focus more on the resurrection than we do on the cross. That may seem like a funny statement to say, but I mean, for 2000 years, Christian theology has focused so much on the cross that we have at least seven different major 
theories of what happened on the cross and how that reconciled us to God, each one going in and out of favor in you know different parts of our history as a faith. And when we talk about Jesus, we you know, even if we do talk about the resurrection, it's always after we talk about the cross, after we talk about the sacrifice or the death. Um, and what if we focused instead on the resurrection, on the empty tomb, first and foremost? How might that change our view of God, our understanding of God, and our relationship to Him, with Him? I hope you have a very good Easter, um, and I hope that you uh, think on these deep thoughts, and if you have any feedback or questions or want to come on the show to talk, let me know. Uh, I'd love to, to do that. Um, and then after thinking these deep thoughts or dwell, or reflecting on these deep thoughts, uh, go enjoy an Easter egg hunt <laughs> and go enjoy a nice meal with your friends and family. God bless.